welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where Here's Frank, Scott, Chris, and Adam. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Fantasy Baseball Today on a Thursday, June 11th. Frank Stanfield here with Scott White, and our special guest we'll get into in just a second. Scott, I've got to say, I'm tired today, man. How are you feeling? Were you up celebrating all night like I was? Uh, Because there was baseball, like a live baseball event happening. Is that what you're talking about? Not entirely. It's more (laughs) so that Rob Manfred guaranteed that we will have Uh. a season 100%. Although at this point, it might just be 20 games. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I I mean, I didn't take that as especially big news because it, it seemed like that, you know, he he has the authority to set the length of the season if if they are going to pay the players prorated salary. So I, I've been operating under that assumption for a while now, but uh, I, I guess it was reassuring for, for some folks out there who, and look, it does like he can say it and it doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> anything either. There's also that aspect to it. So, um, it, you know, yeah, I mean, there, I, I said it on the podcast yesterday. There is going to be a season. It's just a question at this point of how long it's going to be. And, uh, Based on the lines being drawn by both sides, I suspect 48 games is what we're looking at. Baseball coming to a TV near you. But today on the show, we are recapping the first round of the MLB draft. And then later on, we'll get into some sleepers in the RBI and wins categories. Uh, one man who I know was not celebrating last night because he was too busy working during the draft is RJ Anderson, baseball writer for CBSSports.com. RJ, how's everything going? I uh, hope you and the family are staying safe, man. Yeah, we are, and uh, thank you for asking, and hopefully the same is true of both y'all as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, everything's good on my end here, although NYC, it's kind of crazy nowadays. We're, we're slowly ramping things up, uh, and we'll get there eventually, but so far, so good. You can find some of RJ's takeaways from the first round of the MLB draft right now over at cbssports.com slash MLB. Let's jump right in and start with the first overall pick here, RJ. Spencer Torkelson out of Arizona State, selected by the Detroit Tigers. In 129 collegiate games, Torkelson hit 337 with 54 home runs. RJ, tell us a little bit more about the pick. We really see right-handed hitting first baseman as the first overall pick, but apparently, I know this is something you wrote about, the Tigers plan to try him out at third base? Yeah, he's actually the first collegiate first baseman ever selected number one. So congratulations to Mr. Torkelson on that. But they did announce him as a third baseman, and it's an interesting call. It's one that he didn't even seem aware of until he was announced by Commissioner Rob Manfred. I don't think it's going to work. It's not unusual for teams to throw their draftees in at the deep end of the defensive spectrum and then, you know, retrieve them as they progress up the minor leagues level. And frankly, if you're wanting to delay his arrival a little bit, which we know big league teams would never mess with service time, but if you wanted to, this is one way to do that, where you play him at a position that, frankly, he's probably never going to see a major league start at. And then, you know, later on, you can say, okay, we're going to move him back to first base. Let's just give him a little time to settle in at the minor league level initially. Then we'll bring him up to the majors. So I don't think he's going to be a third baseman. But when we're talking about Torgelson, what we're really talking about is his bat. He has a chance to be a very, very good hitter. You know, he has the strength, the eye, 
the bat speed, basically everything you want in a hitter. You know, he's going to hit for average. He's going to take his walks. He's going to hit for power. So it's really just a question of when will the Tigers bring him to the majors. If we were working under a normal minor league system, I would say by the end of next year, he could be in the majors because we're a little weird right now due to the pandemic. I'm not sure if that'll happen, but I do think he's going to move quickly through the system and be potentially their cleanup hitter as soon as opening day 2022. Yeah, I've... 2021, not 2022. <laughs> no, 2022. I'm right. My yeah. gosh. I've, I've seen some uh, some timetables that involve, you know, late 2021, early 2022. What do you think about a player comp when it comes to Torkelson? Because you said that you have faith in the hit tool. I've seen some comps to Pete Alonzo, but I mean, if the yeah. hit tool is there, then he could potentially hit for a better batting average than someone like Pete Alonzo. Yeah, the Alonzo comp is out there, and I think that's certainly a shade of what he could do. You know, you never know of the hit tool until you actually see them against big league pitching, especially with the caliber caliber of arm you see in the majors nowadays. The comp I've been using is Paul Goldschmidt, just because he's a right-hand first baseman who hits for average, again, walks, hits for power. Maybe he falls somewhere in between Alonzo and Goldschmidt. The ever comp that gets thrown out there a lot with Torkelson is to Andrew Vaughn, who was the number three pick in last year's draft by the Chicago White Sox, played in the same conference, a right-handed first baseman from Cal. I had one source in the industry describe Torkelson as a less toolsy Vaughn to me, which, you know, there's an argument to be had down the road there. But at the end of the day, you know, Torkelson has a chance to be a pretty good first baseman. So that's a pretty awesome comp, Paul Goldschmidt. I mean, that was a guy who yeah. we... In years past, got uh, some talk of being the number one overall pick in fantasy. Are, are you somebody who plays fantasy baseball yourself, RJ? I used to play it. And I used to play it poorly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, obviously, in fantasy baseball, offensive impact is all we care about. Defense only matters to the extent it earns a player playing time in a first overall pick. I mean, that's, that's not going to be a question for Spencer Tor- Torkelson, whether he's a full-time player eventually. Knowing how... Knowing he was drafted first, pretty much exclusively for his bat, and uh, you know that he'll, he'll probably be on the fast track. There's, there's no question of all the prospects taken yesterday. This would be the first one to target in a dynasty league as well, right? Yeah, I think that's fair to say because of what you're saying about the offensive value and how defense doesn't necessarily come into play. I guess there are some arguments to be made about the positional value. Correct me if I'm wrong, but a guy like Austin Martin maybe would have a little bit more value just because he can play multiple positions, assuming that is Toronto's plan for him. But yeah, I think Torkelson's a defensible pick. You bring up Martin, who we... I, I think most everybody was projecting him to go second. Yeah. And then he dropped to fifth to the Blue Jays there. Uh, what? What's your impression? impression of him falling what's and what's just your impression of him in general yeah so we'll start with the second part i had him ranked number one on, on the board so i look kind of stupid today but you know i think he's just such a dynamic fit in this era of positionless baseball because this is a guy who has experience at third base second base played center field this year he's probably going to improve in center field with more repetition to kind of just threw him out there and you know he didn't look horrible out there so Worst case scenario, you're talking about a guy who maybe has to move to left field and play second base, and that still has value. Um, but offensively, you know, he really commands the strike zone. He has a very good feel for making contact. He was actually the most difficult batter 
and the power conference to strike out during this abbreviated season. So he can hit for average. He's going to take his walks. And oh, by the way, you know, he can run a little bit. And if you look at his exit velocities, there's reason to believe he's going to hit for more power as he matures. And I know his hitting coach at Vanderbilt, Mike Baxter, who obviously used to play in the majors, believes that power potential is going to be there for him. He's going to tap into it. So I just see a very well-rounded player who can contribute in all categories. And I think, you know, at least in real in real world, you know, we don't necessarily properly value the guys who can fill in at these different positions, you know, the Ben Zobras, the Whit Fields, even the Scott Kingeries. So I think he has a chance to be underrated in, you know, the real world as well as perhaps in fantasy because of that. But um, as it pertains to him slipping, you know, it's interesting because I didn't really hear a reason for that. It, maybe there's concern about his position. Maybe there's some skepticism about him tapping into that power. Otherwise, I don't really have a good reason for it. I guess teams maybe just like other players better, which, you know, that's perfectly fair. And maybe they like the price tags better, too. I, I was wondering about the the power aspect specifically because it, you know, particularly the era we're in in baseball where it seems like everybody who's anybody is going to hit 20 plus home runs. You yeah. Know? Um, it, someone who falls short of that, they, they really have to do some special things otherwise to matter, especially in, in like a fantasy baseball sense. So I yeah. saw some comps for Austin Martin to like Dansby Swanson, who of course has established himself as a full-time major leaguer. So it'd be, you know, you, you, you can't say he was like a bust or anything close to it, but just considering he was a former number one overall pick, the output's been kind of disappointing so far. Um, yeah. So do you think that's a fair comp or do you, are you more hopeful for, for Martin than, than you are for maybe Swanson taking a step forward at this point? You know, I get the comparison, but I also think it's a little lazy because, you know, we're not sitting here comparing Spencer Torkelson to Ike Davis or Brett Wallace. And they were both, you know, Arizona state corner infielders. And so comparing Martin to a former Vanderbilt shortstop, you know, how much of that is a legit comparison? How much of that is just kind of a lazy comparison that, you know, we're grabbing the first player who we can think of from Vanderbilt who went, you know, in the top five or whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I just, when I see Martin and you talked about in this era of baseball, how you have to hit 20 home runs to be somebody. When I look at Martin, I see the same underlying skills and attributes that I see. in a lot of these players who have developed unexpected power, you know, be it Mookie Betts, be it uh, Jose Ramirez, or, you know, some of these other instances, is because he's so good at making contact and he's so good at minding his zone. So for me, I'm viewing that power potential and his offensive potential with optimism. And maybe I'm wrong about this and maybe team sees something that I didn't see, but that's the way I'm coming at it. You know, when it comes to those Dansby Swanson comparisons and really any kind of, you know, outlook for him and his offensive potential. I like that call that you made there in terms of him being able to develop power down the line, guys like Mookie Betts and Jose Ramirez, because if he has that control over the strike zone and has the exit velocity, we've seen teams be able to kind of teach players how to raise their launch angle. So if he can do that and hit line drives and start to hit more fly balls at the major league level, then we could uh, potentially see some, uh, some of that power come to fruition here for Austin Martin. Uh, when it comes to the Orioles, they were the team that passed on Austin Martin second overall, and they surprised many people by taking uh, Heston Kerstad second overall. Uh, apparently, he was regarded as the best left-handed power hitter in the draft, but there may be some concern over his swing, uh, over his plate discipline. You know, what say you when it comes to uh, Kerstad going second overall? Yeah, the comparison I have for him is to Corey Dickerson, 
And the reason I say that is because he's this big bodied left-handed hitter who is a bad ball hitter. And when you watch Kerstad, he hits balls hard, but frankly, he shouldn't even swing at, you know, balls way up in the zone or even above the zone balls below the zone. It just really gives me, you know, <laughs> that Corey Dickerson feel. And I don't say that as an insult because Corey Dickerson has been an above average hitter his entire career. You know, if there's one thing Corey Dickerson can do, it's hit. So first that I think there are also some positive indicators, you know, he cut into his strikeout rate. He improved his contact rate this year, both in the zone and outside of it. And yeah, I think he has a chance to be a good hitter. There is risk there because again, with a bad ball hitter, you're not quite sure if that's going to translate, but you know, he played against the SEC competition. He fared well. He's seemingly improving in areas that you would like to see him improve. And so, yeah, I think he has a chance to be a good corner outfielder and, an above average hitter. Should he have been the second overall pick? You know, that's a little more difficult to answer. It kind of depends on what they do with some of those presumed savings. He's 21 years old. Uh, some people think that he can move rather quickly throughout the minors. What do you think about his potential ETA for the Baltimore Orioles? Yeah, I mean, he should, right? He's SEC tested. He's, you know, the bat's not going to be a question. Or excuse me, you know, the defense and all that, it's going to be fine. It's not going to be anything spectacular but so long as he hits and shows he can hit against you know professional pitching he should fly through that system and we should be seeing him during that 2022 season and i know i misspoke earlier when i said torkelson uh would be on opening day you know these guys are probably had their service time manipulated we'll probably see them more closer to june of 2022 but make no mistake i think they both could be up under normal normal circumstances by the end of next year if we had a minor league season this year and they could get their feet wet so there were a couple of surprises right off the top here in the draft. The Orioles pick was one of them, but I'm interested in the guy the Marlins took third overall, Max Meyer, uh, hard-throwing righty. I know David Sampson talked today that maybe they took him in the hopes they would could potentially make the playoffs an expanded playoff scenario. I don't see how there's any chance of that <laughs> happening, but th- do you see him as a guy who could be fast-tracked to fill a bullpen role, or do do you see him more as a starter? Yeah, so I called him the murder hornet because he's a really small righty, but he's fierce, you know, big fastball, swing and miss slider, uh, just a very competitive kid, good athlete. He actually, you know, if you go on YouTube, you can find a clip of him, him hitting a home run this season. So, you know, he's just a very good athlete. You know, I don't think it's going to come into play with Miami, but I did have a scout tell me, fairly early in this process that if Meyer were to slip to that 10 to 13 block where you have the angels and the reds and the white Sox selecting, and one of them got their hands on him, they could easily see him pitch out of the bullpen this season, especially given the weird pandemic situation and how we may not have, you know, the minor league season and how, you know, teams are going to want fresh arm pitchers. And because he didn't have to throw a full spring and summer, he could fit into that. And same with some other pitchers in this class, like Reed Detmers and, you know, guys we're probably going to talk about in a few minutes. But I don't think that'll be into play this year. Um, with regards to Meyer's long-term outlook, I think you have to let him start until he just proves capable of it because of the stuff and because of the upside there. And, you know, if you're trying to get a mental picture of how big Max Meyer is, think Sonny Gray. And Sonny Gray has shown he can work. You know, Marcus Stroman has shown he can work. With the way that teams are rethinking starting pitching workloads, maybe it's more likely to work now than it would say, 10, 15 years ago. So I think you have to start him until he just proves he's incapable of doing it. So there's another pitcher 
who went a few picks later, who I, I know there's some uncertainty over his long-term role starter or relief, but I was, you know, I, I was just introduced to him yesterday and, and was it, like the highlights I saw just totally wowed me. And that was who the White Sox took in round one, Garrett Crochet. Yeah. Uh, big left-hander, six foot six, and a high spin fastball touches triple digits, right? I mean, he looks like, like if you want upside, he looks like a pitcher to target. Yeah. And he comes with a lot of risks, too. There's a, he's basically like the risk reward pick in the top 15 or so because. You know, he just said all the positive things. And then when you go to his baseball reference page and you look at what he did at Tennessee and you realize only like 13 of his 36 appearances were starts. And it's like, wait a second, <laughs> you know, why is this guy mostly a reliever? Um, but yeah, he has the stuff to be a very interesting big league starting pitcher. And he's one of those guys who I just kind of referenced that with Meyer, he could potentially debut, make his professional debut this year out of the bullpen. You know, we've seen the White Sox do this before of Chris Sale. They brought him up, let him pitch out of the bullpen. You know, he has the fastball slider combination that can make him a late inning, uh, late inning reliever, like right now, provided he throws strikes. And so he's an interesting one to watch, not just for the long term, but also the short term. Well, what would be keeping him from starting? Because I, I'm looking at the scouting reports. It looks like he has three pitches that grade is plus. You mentioned the slider. Uh, change his changeup also looks pretty good, and and he has the size you would think to take on a big workload. So what would be holding him back? Well, and this, command this is Garrett is, Crochet, by the way. Yeah, Garrett Crochet. Uh, you know, command's always an issue for these guys who, you know, kind of split their. Well, I would say for one thing, command because you know during his college career he walked. I think it was like three something. Um, also, just the lack of starting experience. You know, how is he going to handle that workload? And um, can he keep his stuff over 200 innings or 150 innings or what have you? But yeah, I guess those are the main things for me because he wasn't very successful in his freshman season. And I don't know. I, I guess it's just a combination of those things for me. But I think you have to start him, you know, have an intent to start him. And then again, if he proves incapable, then you move him to the bullpen. But yeah, I think it's Basically, just you have to be able to see that he can actually do it before you 100% buy in that he can do it. It's like the availability heuristic, basically. RJ, Asa Lacey went fourth overall to the Kansas City Royals. The Royals are just loading up on starting pitchers the past couple of seasons in their farm system as well. So it'll be interesting to see you know, what their pitching looks like in the next couple of years. But let's just say you're on the clock in a dynasty fantasy baseball league, which is you can keep th- these players for their entire career. Is Asa Lacey the first pitcher that you're looking to take there? Yeah, probably because, you know, he has so many innate attributes that teams look for in their starters. For one thing, he's left-handed, which gives him an advantage over Emerson Hancock and Max Meyer. Granted, it doesn't give him an advantage over Garrett Crochet, but he is more established than Crochet. He has two pitches that grade as elite using the TrackMan data. That's his fastball and a slider. You know, he's well-regarded as a competitor, as a student of the game. I mean, this is, you know, he has the body. The only catch of Lacey is his command. And I know he improved it this year, but in the past, he was pretty wild to the point where if he took his career walk rate, he would basically be like the highest in the majors. So there is some risk here. It's not a sure thing. But I think Lacey just has, you know, 
that upside that's hard to overlook. If he goes, if everything goes really well for him, he could turn into a patch of Corbin type. If things go mostly well, you're probably talking like a Robbie Ray type. So I think that's a pretty good you know spectrum to have yeah. as your upside, especially in fantasy settings, because you know he's probably going to strike out a lot of guys regardless of his walk rate. Yeah, no, I like those comps. That sounds good. One pitcher you didn't mention mm-hmm. uh, when we're talking about potentially the first pitcher you'd take in a fantasy, a dynasty league, Emerson Hancock. And, uh, you know, when I was kind of just doing a little preliminary research before the draft last night, I felt like he was the pitcher who stood out most to me. looks like he has a full arsenal and, you know, all the velocity upside you'd look for. The The Mariners took him, I think, sixth overall, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, what do you think of Emerson Hancock? Yeah, he's very interesting to me. And... You know, we we're kind of breaking it down to Lacey, Meyer, Hancock. Let's be clear, like during the list building process, those three were kind of interchangeable for a little while. Um, but with Hancock, you know, he's got the body. He kind of looks like Mike Miner, Jason Hamill physically. And yeah, he has these three pitches and his fastball is a high spin fastball. I think it's over 2,500 RPM. And yeah, I, yeah, talk- they, I, I forget. I think it was MLB Network I was watching last night, but they did a side-by-side comparison with his... Uh, RPM on his fastball and, and Justin Verlander's and it being really close. So. <laughs> Don't set the kid up for failure, by comparison. <laughs> but yeah. Um, and I talked to his pitching coach at the university of Georgia, Sean Kenny. And it was funny because he told me they actually stressed to Emerson. You can pitch up in the zone with this fastball. It's going to jump over bats up there. And he struggled with that a little bit because his command and control are so good that if he's missing up, it feels like a mistake to him. Or if he's throwing up, I should say, it feels like a mistake, like he missed the spot. So I think that's going to be something that, uh, you know, the mayor is going to have to work with him on elevating more and just, you know, taking advantage of that pitch's innate attributes. Uh, as far as the secondary pitches, I had one scout tell me they actually thought his changeup was better as a freshman and that it took a step backward this season. But then you have a slider. Um, you know, he has a chance for three above average pitches. It's going to be interesting to see what Seattle does with him from a pitch design standpoint, because he does have the qualities that, you know, I think I, I referenced this on the site, you know, people didn't think Shane Bieber was going to be like this until Shane Bieber became like this. And if you're comparing Bieber and Hancock, they're kind of similar physically. They both throw a ton of strikes. I don't know. I'm not saying Hancock is going to become Shane Bieber. I'm just saying, I think that Hancock's upside probably does get discounted a little more than it should because in this pitch design era, it's possible based on, you know, his ability to spin the ball that, yeah, maybe he shows a little bit of improvement. Maybe he finds a changeup that works for him a little better, or maybe he tightens up his breaking ball. Then all of a sudden you have a guy with you know that fastball plus a true swing and miss secondary offering or two. And with his command, I mean, that's a heck of a pitcher. Yeah. If he wasn't even really pitching up, uh, that, that kind yeah. of diminishes the effect of the high spin, right? Cause the idea behind a high spin fastball is you, you locate it up and you get kind of that, artificial rising action right that yeah induces swings and misses yeah absolutely yeah. rj if you were a betting man who would you put money on to be the first player in this draft to make it to the majors it's already been drafted yeah let's let's go with the first round read that Merce, i think you know the angels they're gonna need starting pitching he's gonna be able to provide that or at least in a bullpen role. Maybe they wouldn't start him this year because, you know, he's going to be coming off a layoff or whatever. But I think he's I think he's probably the best bet. Him and Crochet. And if we're going the entire draft, I think that someone is going to take one of these college relievers like Burl Caraway 
a left-hander from Dallas Baptist. I think they're going to fast-track them to the majors. And there's a few other relievers I've heard this about. Uh, Zach McCambly, Nick Garcia. I think he's. I think Garcia is a Division three guy. Can you imagine going from pitching in Division three to major leagues in like six months? That's absurd. But you know, those are guys who this has been talked about, and I think it's going to be one of these college pitchers who comes up and debuts in a relief role or in a spot start role. Who would you bet on to be the most successful? I know I understand it's a loaded question and a lot of yeah. these guys are, most of these guys are a couple of years away. And maybe, look, if your answer is Torkelson or if it's Austin Martin, maybe choose someone you know outside of, you know, those two guys. Oh, man, you're taking the easy, <laughs> you're taking the easy outs off the board and you're asking me like <laughs> the toughest question to answer. All right, so outside of, let's say outside of a top 10, um, and we're saying successful in terms of like accumulating career wins above replacement, or is this just a fantasy perspective? War is um, fine. That makes it tougher. <laughs> I was hoping uh, you're gonna say fantasy. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, if it's it easier, easier from fantasy, then you could do it that way. <laughs> That's a tough one right there. I don't. I can give you a couple of names I feel good about. Like for instance, I think the guy who is. I think the guy who's draft pick will be viewed as like the most value or like the greatest steal or whatever on the yeah. pitching side. It's probably Mick Abel, the high scorer who the Phillies stuck him or Nick Bisco, never high score, but Tampa Bay Rays stuck on the hitting side. My guess is it's probably going to be Garrett Mitchell. The Brewers selected him. You know, he's a speed demon, you know, he's going to stick in center field and there is power potential in that bat. And we all associate the Brewers of unlocking that and Christian Yelich's bat if they can somehow do the same thing with Mitchell, he has star potential and to get him that late in the draft in the first round, at least, you know, that could be, I mean, that could look like a heck of a deal uh, provided they can unlock that upside. Yeah. Garrett Mitchell was the guy who, who fell the most, right. In yeah. terms of where the valuators had him uh, top 10 guy and he was Brewers took him 20th. I mean, that's a good park for him to wind up in too. Miller park. <laughs> no joke. Yeah. I mean, I think he's automatically their top prospect uh, to be fair. That's, partially because their farm system is not very good. But yeah, I think he has a chance to be very, very good. And I think he has a chance to potentially be the position player still at the first round. Was there another player taken in, in the later stages of, of the first round or even in the supplemental uh, phase there right after the first round? Um, was, there, was there any player taken there that you feel like has star potential and, uh, you know, just to, just because he wasn't taken that early isn't going to get a lot of hype. Yeah, I can give you a couple of names here. I think Tyler Soderstrom is one who I heard so many good things about his bat. You know, I had scouts telling me they wouldn't even mess with trying to have him catch because he was a catcher in high school. They would just move him to the outfield, let him hit his way to the majors. Um, I don't know if Austin Hendrick technically counts as a later first round guy, but he has got an explosive swing and. I mean, if it all clicks, and I don't think it's all going to click because it's seldom always, you know, everything seldom clicks. But if everything clicks for him, we're talking a monster uh, home run hitter, probably a star, the superstar level player. Uh, let's see, who else was taking that? Um, and who took Austin Hendrick? The Reds, right? Okay. I believe they took him just outside of the top 10. So, again, he's okay. not really a late first round right. pick. Two of my personal favorites, and they're not going to be star players, but uh, Tanner Burns, who was Cleveland's second pick of the night in the supplemental round. I think he was like 34 or something like that. You know, I know he slipped a little bit because of concerns about his shoulder and his size, but you're talking about a guy who really grades well on track, man. 
Uh, he finished first or second in innings at Auburn in all three years. And the year he finished second was to Casey Mize. I don't know if you guys or anyone out there has ever heard of Casey Mize, but he was the number one pick that year. So that's a pretty good guy to finish second to. And, you know, it's hard to be successful or as successful as Burns was in the SEC. So I think, you know, I think he's going to move quickly, even if he doesn't necessarily have a star ceiling. Then Nick Lofton, who the Royals took, again, he's not going to be a star, but he can do a little bit of everything. You know, he can run, play shortstop, hit for average. And it's kind of what we talked about with Martin earlier. Like, you know, if a guy can really put the bat on the ball and he has a good feel for the zone, it's at least possible his power plays a little above what you expect on draft day. So maybe on him as well, I don't think he's going to grow into his power like um, like Austin Martin will, but maybe there's a little bit more than we're giving him credit for right now. Maybe the answer is Mark Martin or uh, mm-hmm. somebody else we've already covered. But aside from Spencer Torkelson, just speaking in terms of upside, entirely talking upside here, who do you, who do you see who has the most upside? I just mentioned Hendrick. I think he's got a ton of upside. Uh, Zach Veen has middle of the order upside, although that's a top 10 pick. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in fantasy, I I mean, you look at Zach Veen and he has this angular, broad-shouldered frame and you just envision him putting on more strength. And then in that ballpark, I mean, 30-plus home runs, you know, he's going to hit for an average. Like, he has the chance to be, like, the next great is he a Coors Mirage argument, in my opinion, you know? Because we always yeah. talk about those with great. There's Matt Holiday and Tulowitzki and now Arenado. I think he has a chance to be the next guy where it's like, you know, how much of this is ballpark? How much of this is just natural talent? And for him, I think it's going to be a lot of natural talent. But if we're going a little further out there, uh, just to name some of our interesting names, Jordan Walker, he's a six foot five third baseman. So we'd be like the tallest, tied for the tallest third baseman in the league with Chris Bryant and he has power potential. There's some question of, over whether he's going to be able to stick at third base because of that size. But if he can, you know, that's going to be pretty interesting if the power plays. And then um, you have to mention Nick Bitsko. You know, I know we're pretending he's a mystery man, but before he reclassified to this year, he was a potential top three, top five pick in next year's draft. Crazy metrics. Has the, deliver, excuse me, the delivery you like, you know. He just kind of checks all the boxes. So I know they don't have a ton of, you know, exposure to him over the last year plus, at least in person exposure, but he has a chance to be a very good pitcher as well. I'll leave it to the Tampa Bay Rays, RJ. What else is new? (laughs) Just constantly snatching up value. Uh, And if there's any organization to figure it out, I would trust the Tampa Bay Rays. RJ, I want to thank you again for joining us to help break down the first round of the MLB draft. Don't forget, everybody, rounds two through five are tonight again Thursday, June 11th. RJ, I assume you'll be watching closely uh, and providing content on the site. Yeah, you can check out all of our coverage on cbssports.com slash MLB. We will have a lot more coming, including a preview of next year's class. And maybe next year we'll be sitting here talking about Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker and which one you should take in the Dynasty League. Make sure to follow him on Twitter at R underscore J underscore Anderson and read his work again, cbsports.com slash MLB. We'll take a quick break here. And when we return, we'll take a look at some sleepers for the RBI and wins categories. Worn by players like Michael Harris to meet the demand of elite ball players, the New Balance Fuel Cell 4040 V7 is a versatile option. The 4040 V7 is built for the athlete who needs responsiveness and ability to cut and run at their full speed. 
The model features a fuel cell foam underfoot and a synthetic and mesh upper to provide breathability, comfort, and a snug fit as you round the bases. The fuel cell midsole features nitrogen-infused foam specifically designed to propel athletes forward. Learn more about the 4040 at newbalance.com. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. Nothing beats a weekend away with the family in the great outdoors, whether it's camping, hiking, river rafting, or anything in between. With third-row seating, nobody is left out. The entire family can experience the thrill together, and nobody wants a dead phone. Available dual wireless charging pads make it so nobody gets stuck, and we can check our fantasy baseball teams together. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. All right, we're back here, Fantasy Baseball Today. Thanks again to RJ Anderson for joining us and help break down the MLB draft. Scott, you know, we were just talking about this. That's probably the most MLB draft content we've ever provided on Fantasy Baseball Today. Oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is because the draft happens mid-season, and you'll find out, Frank. I mean, I mean, certainly you've done in-season fantasy baseball podcasts before, but I don't know if you've done them the way CBS does them, and it's a it's a slog getting to everything that happened the day before. Oh, I know. Every day, I know for um, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. The talking about a bunch of prospects who we're not going to see for several years usually isn't high on our on our to-do list, but hey, this is the year to do it, for sure. Absolutely. So for all you Dynasty players out there, I hope you were paying close attention. Scott, let's jump in here. We've been doing the category sleepers all week long. We've been talking about it here on the podcast. You've been writing about it over at CBSSports.com, and today we are going to talk about RBI and wins. And last year, there were 22,471 RBI. That was the most since 2007. We know offense was up. Home runs were up. The juice ball last year. Uh, In a Roto League, in a 12-team Roto League, you needed around 1,130 RBI to finish first in that category. That averages out to just over 80 RBI per starting uh, starting offensive player that you have in your lineup. You have to be careful, though, because... Catchers are going to bring that down. Leadoff hitters are going to bring that down. Some of those speed-only guys, Malik Smith, definitely going to bring that down. Uh, t- last year, 2019, 22 players with 100-plus RBI. There were 44 with 90-plus. To put that in perspective, the year before, there were only 16 with 100-plus RBI and only 28. So we saw an increase of 16 more players last year with 90-plus RBI uh, Scott, I know we've talked about this all week long, but you said RBI are very closely tied and correlated to home runs, which makes sense, which means a lot of the RBI, a lot of the home run category sleepers that you're targeting are also going to provide that category for you. Yeah, yeah. It's like you said about uh, like leadoff hitters, and it, it actually won't be quite as bad in in, in the NL specifically if if. There's universal DH, you know, there's not going to be that automatic out batting in front of a leadoff guy. So it, um, but you know, even if you look at AL leadoff hitters over the years, they're, you know, the guys batting at the bottom of the order are still low OBP guys. So, so, you know, you generally don't see a lot of RBI from the leadoff spot, even if they're a good power hitter. So it's, 
Yeah, I feel like this stat is mostly tied to power and it's mostly tied to to lineup spots specifically. You want a guy who's batting behind a lot of high OBP guys. And uh and that's where you're generally going to see a lot of RBI production. But I do think as long as you're targeting power numbers, you're you're probably going to end up okay here. It's of all the hitting categories, you know, we, we talked about this yesterday with runs, and it's the same goes for runs, but especially RBI. It's not one I am uh, really singling out at any point in the draft. Yeah, it's really just, you know, when you start to target power hitters, when you're like, realize, okay, I need to get some home runs. RBIs are going to, RBI are going to come with those home run hitters. So guys that we've mentioned uh, throughout the week, Chris Davis with a K, I think is someone who can bounce back in the RBI department. Uh, Renato Nunez, I think is interesting, maybe in a deeper league. Justin Upton projected to bat in the middle, you know, whether it's four or five in that lineup for the Los Angeles Angels, he should be able to provide some RBI. You know, some later round guys, Scott, that I think are interesting that maybe... Normally, we wouldn't have thought of, but Robbie Cano, I understand. He was dreadful last year, but he's projected to bat third for the New York Mets, and that, and that's a pretty good lineup. So say what you want about Cano. He might be done. If that's the case, then yeah, he's not going to help you. But for where he's going, it's a that's a pretty good value. Someone that I could actually yeah. see contributing RBI this season. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I the first guy I think of, you don't have on your list here, and that's Gio Urshela. That's your uh, guy. Got to stay consistent. Yeah, I mean, I I brought it up every time I we've talked. I brought up the RBI potential every time I've talked about him because I feel like that's an like you're putting the ball in play as often as he does. You're you're getting hits in play as often as he does. You know, he doesn't necessarily have to be home runs uh, when you're getting hits of any kind and you're batting in a lineup as deep as that. I think uh, I think Urshel is probably going to be a good source of RBI. Um, Justin Upton, I'm glad you brought him up because he could be hitting directly behind Trout, Rendon, and Otani, and for that matter, Otani in in you know providers that that split up the hitter version and the pitcher version. The hitter version on the days he plays anyway should be a very prolific source of RBI with two. 400 OBP guys batting directly in front of him. Um, did you mention you mentioned Chris Davis, right? Yeah, of Chris Davis with a K. Yeah, Willie Calhoun. <laughs> Willie Calhoun should be batting in the one. heart of the Rangers lineup. Uh, maybe even directly behind Shinsu Chu, Luke Voigt. How about just any Yankees at this point, right, Scott? Yeah, I mean, their lineup really. is so deep; it's it doesn't really matter where you bat. Because there's going to be RBI opportunities up and down that entire lineup. Yeah. I know this is a boring pick, but Mark Canna, I, I think he's an even a better source of, of runs, but it's it's not like he's going to bat first or second in that lineup. So if the power is there like I expect it to be, the RBI should as well. And I mean, J.D. Davis, too. It's, you know, now I've got the trifecta of hitters. I've, I'll, <laughs> I always talk about Canna, J.D. Davis, and... Gio Urshela. They should all be good late-round sources of RBI. Yeah, it's a good Miguel, point. Miguel Andujar, if we're going to go with another Yankee, I mean, depends how often he plays, but he kind of has a similar hitting profile to Gio Urshela, where there's going to be a lot of hits in play. And um, those are, for, when it comes to RBI, those are more valuable than walks. That's one 
that's one instance where you'd rather have a hit than a walk. Yeah. So, uh, just comes down to playing time. Too. Just comes down to playing yeah. time for Andujar, and we'll see how this. You know, normally, we say these situations work themselves out, but the Yankees just have so much depth. It, it could take potentially a few injuries to see what happens there. Scott, I'm going to throw a few names your way, and for every name, you just tell me whether or not you might be interested in this person providing RBI. Didi Gregorius, shortstop, out of position RBI there. Well, he does put the ball in play a lot and has pretty good power. I'm not sure where he's projected to hit. I'm trying to pull up the lineup here. Pretty low, but that that could always change. I could I could see him batting in the two hole or something at some point. I don't know. Um, I don't hate it, but I, I'm not a big Didi Gregorius fan to begin with. I think the power is kind of suspicious. Travis Shaw. I mean, that's a guy with a huge range of outcomes. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> he bounces back completely, sure. Projected to but, bat fifth. I mean, just yeah. behind, you know, Vlad and Lourdes Gurriel and Bo Bichette. He's twice have some... the 30 homer guy in Milwaukee, right? So that he would definitely get some RBI batting there if he can hit it all still, which is a fair question at this point. So I'm not I'm not making him an RBI target specifically. He's just a total lottery ticket pick. And uh, you're probably getting a lot of big production if it if it uh, if it comes through. How about David Peralta? I was just scrolling through roster resource pages today, and he's projected to bat cleanup for the Arizona Diamondbacks. So could work out. Yeah, yeah, I like that pick. He usually hits for a good batting average, so that's you know you have that lineup spot, and you hit with it for a good average, you have a good chance of driving in runs. All right, the last one I'll mention to you. I've got to do it. Albert Pujols. He had 93 RBI last year, Scott. This is probably more of a AL only. Maybe a 15-teamer if you're desperate. Well, that's interesting because Roster Resource actually projects him to hit ahead of Upton even in that lineup, which means he would be the one batting directly behind Rendon, Trout, and Otani. I feel like I feel like hitting a spot or two behind Rendon and uh, Trout and Rendon has got to be the best RBI position in all of baseball. And Pujols, I mean, for as much as he declines, he's he's declined. He still puts the ball in play a lot. So I, I think it's, you know, um, that you're, you'd have to be in a pretty desperate spot for <laughs> RBI to make that pick. But he should have, provided he's an everyday player still, he should have a lot of RBI, yeah. This roster resource is kind of crazy, though, for the Angels. I understand Pujols is making a lot of money, but are they really going to hit him ahead of Justin Upton? That that seems kind of crazy to me. He hit... What's, he does, he does he make a lot most, of contact. He, he hit fourth but. and fifth most often last year. So he was in... He was in the prime spot batting behind Trout and Otani a yeah. lot of the year. But that was before um, Rendon so. was there, and Upton was hurt for a large majority of yeah. the season. So. Okay, so yeah. when Upton was healthy, it looks like Pujols batted behind him. It looks like it was okay. Upton fourth, Pujols fifth. So Oof. yeah, you add Rendon there to the third spot, you push everybody back. Yeah, I think I think I would expect Upton to bat in front of Pujols. But the thing is, if Upton bounces back, He's a good OBP guy too. He's good for a 350 on base percentage. I think uh, basically every year. I think sometimes it's even been higher than that. He, he walks a fair amount. So, so yeah, that wouldn't that wouldn't necessarily bring down Pujols' RBI. It'd bring it down a little, but it would still be good. Scott, anything Career else to add? 47 OBP for Upton. Yeah, not bad. Anything else to add on RBI, Scott? 
Now let's move on to wins. Yeah, wins. This is a fun category here. Fun. Yeah, let's talk about it. Uh, You needed about 100 wins in 2019 to win that category in a 12-team Roto League. That averages out to just just over 11 wins per pitching slot. Keep in mind, you're going to have two to three closers most often in your... uh, in your starting spots for your pitchers in a Roto League. So uh, that means you're going to need more from your starting pitchers there. Uh, 2019, there were 17 starting pitchers with 15 or more wins. There were 41 starting pitchers with 12 or more wins. Some standouts in that category. Eduardo Rodriguez, 19 wins. Domingo Herman, 18 wins. Max Fried, 17. Lance Lind, 16. Marco Gonzalez and Dakota Hudson, 16. Jake Odorizzi and Mike Fires. 15 wins each. Basically, Scott, the point that I'm getting at is wins to me are the most unpredictable category. I'm not talking about the scarcity. I think even more than saves and steals, wins are the most unpredictable in fantasy baseball. Yeah, that's that's fair. And that's that's why we've mostly gotten away from trying to predict them. We... Uh, rarely talk about a pitcher's win potential. I've actually kind of, I brought, I talked about this yesterday. I've actually kind of tried to bring it back because I think, I think where you can most predict it is in terms of how deep a pitcher goes into games. And that has become, uh, that's, that's become a hot button issue here the last couple of years. Pitchers, particularly up and coming pitchers have their innings curtailed more and more seeing pitchers, get pulled from games earlier and earlier and, and where you see it really have an impact is the wind potential. The more, you know, the less, to, less a pitcher leaves to the bullpen, the more time he gives his offense to give him a lead, you know, the better chance he has of coming away with a win. And, and I do say this often, the win is the most valuable pitching stat, at least in standard Roto and standard points leagues. It's, it's, it's frustrating because of how unpredictable it is, but you definitely want it. All right, Scott, I'm going to ask you to predict the unpredictable. We're talking sleepers for every category. If you had to choose a few names that come to mind that can potentially win some games and help out in that category, who are they? And what goes into that? Is it just players on good teams, have good run support, guys that go deep into games? Who are those players and what are you looking for? Yeah, those would be the the two biggest factors. Uh, the three biggest factors would probably be in this order: how deep he goes into games, how good his supporting lineup is, and how good his his bullpen is. Those would probably be the three biggest factors. I mean, the biggest factor is how good the pitcher himself is. Let's not <laughs> let's not overlook that. Um, but that I assume goes without saying. So, so yeah, I I would want a guy who. I felt confident was going to go six innings most of the time. Most it doesn't necessarily have to av- average six innings, though that would help. That's that's a pretty high standard to meet when you factor in, you know, the number of times a pitcher gets pulled, you know, because he's getting knocked around in the third inning or whatever, brings that average down. But you know, most of the time expecting him to go six, preferably more. And uh that would be the first thing I look at here. So, more established guys, I think. Uh, I think it helps. Um, 
you know, names that jump out to me immediately to me, Masahiro Tanaka, of course, has that Yankees lineup and bullpen, both very strong. Kenta Maeda actually has been held back in the past from getting wins because of what we think was uh, the Dodgers exploiting the terms of his contract, keeping his innings count low. And we suspect the Twins are going to let him pitch deeper. And of course, they have a great lineup. And I think an underrated bullpen, too. Um, you know, Mike Fultonevich, if he's, if he's the good version. Marcus Stroman, sure. He should throw some innings. Dallas Keuchel, I mean, he, he's become kind of injury prone, but when he's healthy, he goes seven innings with good consistency. So I think he's, he's somebody you could uh, call a sleeper for wins. Um, how many wins? Well, I just think he's a bad pitcher. I was going to say Dakota Hudson, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was I, so I don't lucky. I'd last ever year. be desperate enough for wins to to take the whip hit and uh, possible bust potential there. Yeah, he won 16 games last year, which is right. just insane. And he did that with a 7K per nine and 4.43 walks per nine, which is, I mean, that's a walk rate similar to Robbie Ray. And you're right. looking at seven Ks per nine versus what twelve from Robbie Ray. So it's just it seemed very fluky what he did last year. He had a three three five ERA, a four five five XFIP, and a one four one WHIP. So I'm with you there. He won the sixteen games last year, but I am not going back to the well. Yep, Jay Happ. I mean, he pitches for the Yankees and was made an adjustment this offseason that that was earning him some praise this spring. He was he went 20 and 4 I think back in 2016. It's crazy looking back at that. I don't remember that at all, but uh he seems like a good one. I mean and not really Joe Musgrove just cuz the Pirates are so bad though I think Scott he'll go, he'll go deep <laughs> enough in the games. Yeah, he will go deep, but it's it's tough to rely on the Pirates for run support, the Tigers, you know, as much as Chris and I, and to an extent, I know you like Matthew Boyd as well. He'll provide strikeouts, but I mean, you have to be realistic. Weird yeah. things are going to happen. Marco Gonzalez won 16 games last year for the Mariners. Yeah, they were not a good right. team, but right, it it's it's tough. It could it's, happen. It's just not something I'm going to predict. You know? Right, and that's that's what it all comes down to here. I, you know, Dakota Hudson may not be the guy who wins a bunch of games for the Cardinals, but Miles Michaelis might, and I think he's a good whip, uh, whip sleeper too. Uh, someone who doesn't really fit the mold, but I think is a pretty good win sleeper is Ryan Yarbrough. Yep, I like it. I like him guy, and Chirinos. The guy who follows the opener, he doesn't necessarily have to pitch six plus innings himself to get to a point where he's not leaving much to the bullpen. And two years ago, Yarbrough won 17 games Yep, doing that. And I think last year it was like a dozen or something. It wasn't bad. So he's kind of a sleeper for wins. Yeah, I like as that. As well as whip. I like the... Um, I like the call you made on Kenta Maeda. I actually like all the twins, and I'm on record already saying this because they get to face the Royals, they get to face the Tigers. If they're facing their uh, opposing division in the National League, they get to face the Pirates as well. So Odorizzi doesn't go all that deep into games. There's you know, some worry there with him going third time through the order, but I think with his run support, he can get wins. I think Rich Hill... Basically, a name that we've mentioned every day this week. Every time, yeah. Uh, Jose Urquidy. All four of the starting pitcher categories, <laughs> he is a sleeper for. Yeah, so you should probably draft Rich Hill. That's the point that we're getting at. Scott, Jose Urquidy, I think is interesting because oh, yeah. projected low whip pitcher, should have some good run support, has a very good bullpen behind him. 
I think Urquidy's a sleeper for wins here. Yeah, I do worry how often he'll go six innings. That's fair. And, and the same thing for Odorizzi. I, I intentionally didn't mention him, but in both cases, the supporting cast is so good that it, you know, they could still. Uh, you know, I don't even know what a good number of wins would be in a forty-eight game season. I was one of the one what? of the stats that jumped out to me when I was looking at where <laughs> players stood statistically fifty games into last season. Eduardo Rodriguez, who went on to win nineteen games, had only four at that point. That is interesting. Um, but you know, it's basic. It's a little less than a third of the season of the season. No, it's it's more like a quarter of the season. Forty-eight games. Yeah, so a big win total would be like six, right? <laughs> Predicting the unpredictable, six. Scott. That's what we're here to do. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're talking about, uh, when you're talking about late round win sources, you're talking about somebody who could give you four or five in a 48-game season. Yeah. Assuming that's what it ends up being. And, you know, there's still a chance it's closer to 80 games, but I'm losing hope for that. Yeah, it sounds weird, but 2020 is the face of weird at this point. Uh, so there you go. Some wins and RBI sleepers. Do you have anything else to add, Scott, on wins? I could probably find a few other names. We gave, we gave a few out there. I would say we gave yeah. double-digit names. That's a decent amount of sleepers here in the wins category. Um, yeah, nothing glaring. I think we're good. Let's yeah, move on I mean, some... Herman Marquez, maybe. Yeah, uh, on the road. <laughs> I, I, I just can't draft Rockies pitchers, Scott. I can't do it. Like, I mean, Chris thinks the Rockies are going to be just a bad team. So that, uh, they, I mean, statistically, they weren't a good team last year. Yeah. So we'll see. But I, I know John Gray has all the upside in the world. Same thing for Marquez. But get those guys out of Colorado, and then I'll be interested. But until then, I can't do it with those guys. Send in your emails, fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Just want to quickly remind everyone that we will also answer your emails that you send via Apple Podcast Review. So continue to rate, review, and subscribe. Give us those five-star Apple Podcast Reviews if you enjoy what we're doing. I mean, who doesn't? Come on. Cole Hamels. We're giving you five podcasts a week on Fantasy Baseball. Who else is doing that right now? Nobody. That's who. And make make sure to join our Fantasy Baseball Today Facebook page. Tell a friend to tell a friend to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today. All right, Scott. This one comes from Andrew in Denver. Dear Mookie, George, and others. Okay. <laughs> Mookie, George, and others. Are there players who are in a contract year and might decide uh, to sit out the short, shortened season like a top college football player sitting out the bowl game to avoid injury before the draft or skipping the combine to avoid the risk of a small sample bad performance and subsequent drop in value? Some of the names that are in a contract year this year, Scott, Mookie Betts, George Springer. Ah, are, there they are. Those were the names in the title. Those are uh, the names. Liam Hendricks, DJ LeMahieu, Jake Odorizzi we already mentioned, Marcus Semien, your boy, Didi Gregorius is on a one-year deal, Marcelo Zuna is on a one-year deal, and then, of course, the always interesting Trevor Bauer and Robbie Ray. Oh, um... It's it's a good thought. I, I hadn't heard anything about this. I wonder if it's a pitch some agents are making to their clients. Look, it's possible. We we could see some crazy. Um, we could see some players opt out for a number of different reasons, and they could be fairly high profile. I think 
it, under the conditions where MLB would mandate the schedule, a player would lose his pay for when it get paid for 2020 if he chose to sat out. And so I think that'll be an incentive for, for a lot of guys to play. I'll just say, Scott, George Springer and Marcus Semien, if last year could have been their uh, contract years, I'm sure that they would have loved that. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't read anything about those two names in particular, but uh, those were two guys that put up career years last year. So I'm sure they sure. wished that was their contract year. So is anyone actually going to sit out? Probably not for this reason, but again, 2020 is the face of weird and nothing would surprise me at this point. This next one's from Tim. If you were to trade Christian Yelich or Ronald Acuna away in a 10-team Roto League, Scott, what would you expect in return? I have been offered Garrett Cole and Freddie Freeman for my Christian Yelich and Shane Bieber. Seems kind of like a wash trade. Yeah, I mean, first and first and second round pick for another first and second round pick. But I think the gap between... Like, I would hesitate when my pick came up and Freeman and Bieber were both still on the board. I would hesitate with that pick more than I would in the first round, if Yelich and Cole were on the board, I would just automatically take Yelich. So this doesn't look like a trade I would make, but it's, it's you know, it's one team's first and second rounder for another team's first and second rounder, and there's nothing unfair about it. Yeah, you know, what I might try to do here, I wouldn't try and just get depth in return because in a 10-team league, you just yeah. need the best players in your lineup at all times. But if you can turn Yelich and, let's say, your... Maybe Bieber was your third round pick. Let's say your fourth round starting pitcher or your fifth round starting pitcher. If you can turn those two into Garrett Cole and Freddie Freeman, that would be something I'd more so be looking towards doing. But I I just don't know how realistic it is, Scott. Yeah, it would probably be I, I might want I might want to be on the two side of a two for one, honestly, to give up Yelich. Like those kinds of super elite players in a 10 team league those are everything it's just how many elite players can you cram into one lineup and right. so like the the cost once the draft is over to pry one of those guys away should be astronomical i feel like so cole and maybe like if you could get two great pitchers i would i'd be tempted to do it like if you could get like a cole and a giolito or something but that's you know, you'll probably get turned down, but that's that's kind of the point. Is you you need to ask for a lot. Yeah, shoot high. Uh, you're giving up Christian Yelich. He's one of the top three players being drafted in every draft. It, even if you can give him up for Garrett Cole and a third or fourth round outfielder, if you can do like Scott, would you do give up your Yelich to get Garrett Cole and Austin Meadows? Is that a trade you would make? It's a trade I'd consider. I think the reason I picked a pitcher is because I feel like no matter how shallow the league is, there's going to be not enough of those guys to go around when, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying there are a lot of outfielders that are going to going to perform, perform like Austin Meadows, but there are a lot of outfielders out there who could potentially perform like a high end outfielder, including ones that likely went undrafted. So, um, you know, generally speaking, you want to be on the other side of the two for one deal, which is why, you really need to make sure you're getting impact if you're on the side getting the two. This next one's from Damon. I'm in a long-term auction dynasty, mixed keeper league. 
We had planned our auction in late March, and our constitution says that the keeper declaration date is two weeks prior to the draft date, which I think is fair in a lot of keeper leagues. So in mid-March, we declared uh, which players from our 24-man offseason roster would be we would keep and which we would throw back into the auction. Shortly after, we canceled the auction. Now the question is, assuming a new auction date in June or July is announced, should we move to a new keeper declaration date two weeks prior to the new auction date or should you have to keep the keepers that you already declared for the previous date, if that makes sense, Scott. But I feel like a lot of people are having this issue now where they've already submitted their keepers. I have a keeper league like this, actually, where we submit our keepers a week before, and no one's really talked about it since then. I haven't talked to the commissioner. I just assume that whenever we announce our draft date, we will have a new weekly deadline beforehand to submit our keepers. And I think that's the fairest way to do it. Yeah, I don't really see the argument for for not resubmitting keepers. It's not like people have made new moves based on that knowledge of what everybody kept because the auction never happened. So it would just... You know, I can't think of a player who's lost a ton of value, like suffered a major injury, and I may just be overlooking somebody. Um, but that would be ridiculous to make somebody hold to that keeper if that happened. and. So with that in mind, I don't see why you want to just let everybody resubmit their keepers. It might be a bit of a headache for the commissioner if rosters have already been purged and you'll have to look up last year's rosters. That might be a little bit of a challenge, but not enough to keep you from doing it. So yeah, I would I would have a new keeper date. Yeah, I think if anything, Scott, it's probably gone the other way, that there's been so many more players that have gained value since then. Right. So you know, maybe initially you didn't want to keep a... Clevenger because he was hurt or you didn't want to keep a Blake Snell because you know his season outlook was grim at the time or or Willie Calhoun or someone like that right because so many different values have changed so I think that's probably the way that it's been affected the most but I do think whenever people set up their new keeper league drafts you should change your keeper declaration date to either a week or two weeks prior whatever your league normally does change it Eh, you know let's show a little bit of fairness here Scott the integrity of the game I like being a fair commissioner. It's it's <laughs> it's an underrated quality in a commissioner. You, heaven forbid you behave like someone people would want to play with. Scott is a fair man. He's a fair commissioner. And that'll do it. I appreciated the show today. Some MLB draft talk, some RBI, some wins. We'll be back again tomorrow to round out our week of Roto Category Sleepers. We appreciate you all for listening. For Scott, I am Frank. We'll be back again tomorrow. Bye-bye. 